Welcome to Books, Broads, Booze. This is your host, Jamie. And Monica. Hello, hello. Hello, howdy folks. You have made it to the finale of season five. Yay! <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm going to be like super excited this whole episode. Our discussion is centering around Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Yes, this was an intense read, I thought. It is, I'm going to say, very emotionally draining. It is, and it also um, has big masculine energy. Like, this is a manly book with, like, manly, manly emotions. Man doing manly <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I found some um, discussion questions. Questions and topics for discussion from the publisher, PenguinRandomHouse.com. They were kind of t- enough to provide us with these. They're free for anyone, of course. <laughs> yeah, and it was nice to have kind of a framework to, like, go by as we were thinking about the podcast tonight. Because there's just a lot going on in this book. It, it seems like uh, every stuff it's just another horrible thing happening and i was like wow i thought my book that i was writing was dramatic i'm like it's nothing compared <laughs> to this guy yeah this poor guy yeah <clears throat> so uh like i'll just read this it says ellison managed to encompass the entirety of american language black and white highbrow and low down musical religious and jivey and reshape it into his own ends an invisible man he created one of those rare works that is a world unto itself a book that illuminates our own in ways that are not once hilarious and devastating i didn't really find many hilarious parts though i thought that was a little misleading <laughs> there was a couple of times that i giggled and i like a lot of times i was just like oh. Yeah, like this is too painful to laugh. Well, and I was talking, um, I was talking with Matt actually, and I was like, you know, people read for different reasons, and this book made me aware of why I read, and I read for escapism and to escape horrible things like this book is about. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there's people that also write to be able to process their emotions and like put their experience out for other people to be able to understand and relate to so i mean and that's awesome and i am just a very fluffy reader and you know (laughs) matt and my daughter they read more like serious literature and stuff and therefore they don't read very often Uh me i'm like Give me the light, fluffy fantasy fiction. Every day. Make me feel happy. (laughs) And I'm like, you will feel darkness. The darkness is here. And you will enjoy the darkness, Monica. So the first question I have is, what makes Ellison's narrator invisible? What is it the relationship between his invisibility and other people's blindness, both involuntary and willful? Is the protagonist's invisibility due solely to his skin color is it only the novel's white characters who refuse to see him? Okay, I actually wrote out my answer to this one, and it might not be what was expected, but I believe a big part of why he feels invisible is because he's just sort of 
swept along in life by the judgments of other people. He doesn't so much make choices as have reactions. And he starts to see less and less of himself in the life around him. And I don't think this is solely due to skin color, but although certainly it plays a huge part. And I think the white characters in the book seem to see him only as someone to be used for their own benefit. Like, for example, um, the director at the university, you know, was just like, um, you're my life's, you're giving my life meaning, basically. Right. You know, so that was kind of my take on it. But I'm sure there are several. I I agree with what you wrote. And I also don't think it was only due to his skin color. Um, there was other black people that did not see him that he was invisible to because he wasn't what they expected him to be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was... He had especially, a hard time with everybody. Especially when he put on his Clark Kent classes. <laughs> okay. One drawback of invisibility is that you ache with the need to convince yourself that you do exist in the real world. How does the narrator try to prove that he exists? Does this sentence provide a clue to the behavior of other characters in the book? Well, he beats up that guy right at the beginning. Yeah. I'm real. Pew, pew, pew. Well, and that is, I looked up the sentence, and that's basically what he says. He tries to prove he exists by, quote, striking out with his fists. And I'm not sure how it relates to the other characters, but you can see the frustration, you know, building time and time again in the main character. And he actually sees it in himself also. Self-acknowledged. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, um, that's, I think, feel like that's where this book had a real big masculine feel to it. Like, how do these men process and deal with these hard emotions, you know? And a lot of times it's a lot more, I don't want to say aggressive, but it's more active than the way women deal with them. Right, right. <clears throat> the female characters of the book aren't typical female characters I would feel like they weren't stereotypical they were definitely placed there for a purpose but the meat of the story is Mm -hmm. him interacting with just everyone in the world yeah yeah there was one female character I think that I really liked which was Mary who uh, nurtured him and kind of gave him a into place the house. to live and, like, and stuff. Don't worry about what you owe. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, she was like one of the only female characters that even really seemed like a whole complete person. I think. Yeah, I liked how when she was yelling at him, "Stop banging on the pipes." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was family for sure. What are the narrator's dreams and goals? How are these variously fulfilled or thwarted in the course of the book? So many dreams smashed. Yeah, at the beginning, he just wants to go off to college and become a farmer, have a family, live close to his family. Yeah, I think, um, and I think at one point, he, like, I broke, graduate from college he wanted to be an educator at one point. Um, he always seemed to have this natural talent for speech making. Oh, he wanted to su- give his speech from high school 
Mm-hmm. That was one of his first goals is I want people to hear my speech. I want people to hear me talk. And then when he was doing speech talking, he was like, I'm feeling this is like my mission. I'm feeling fulfilled. But even that, you know, it, it leads, everything leads to disappointment for him. And, and it's all beyond his control. <laughs> it is uh, very tragic. Uh, although, yeah. Ooh, sorry. I did some little rearranging <laughs> in the podcast room because we now can accommodate guests at my household. Hooray! <laughs> uh, not that my children are allowing any guests over at the household. They're like, no, no strangers allowed. I was <laughs> like, these would be people we know. No, nobody we know, not of the house. <laughs> but So it's made our little podcast area a little more cozy and cramped. So I just like burst into the wall like, oh, that elbow, <laughs> oh, the drywall's gone. We'll get used to it. That's right. Uh, so question four, is the reader meant to identify with the narrator, to sympathize with them? How do you think Allison sees his protagonist? This was a tough question for me because I definitely don't um, identify with the narrator, nor do I really think that I was meant to. I think this is more kind of like what you were talking about. This is, um, this is, you know, processing some things from the writer's point of view. I don't think this has anything to do with me. Um, I'm not sure if I was meant to sympathize with the character, with the character, although I, I certainly did. Um, his circumstances were just so foreign and unfair to me. I just can't even imagine. <laughs> I feel like his his narrator, the protagonist, was supposed to sort of document an existence of what happens so that people could be aware that this is all real. Mm. And that he didn't really necessarily want sympathy, but he's invisible. He wants to be seen. So as long as you could see him and see his existence and see his struggles, I feel like that's what I was supposed to get out of the story. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense than what I said. <laughs> I, I do, I do, I do, I do. So, uh, question five. What is the significance of the grandfather's deathbed speech? Oh, so I read this several times. And because the first time I read it, I was like, what? This guy is quacky. I'm like, but then um, the character in the book is like, I didn't understand what he said. And I was like, okay, good. I didn't either. And he talks about it repeatedly throughout the book. But I think by the time you get to the end of the book, I mean, this is where I was at with it. The grandfather's deathbed speech is actually a, a call to action. I feel like he regrets going with the path of least resistance, and he feels like he's betrayed the fight for equality. I feel like he felt at the end of his life that he that he didn't do enough. Right, it- so the, the backstory is the grandfather always did what was expected of him by society. He was described as meek. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and he was just sort of like, um, gave this speech at his deathbed pointing out the narrator whose name we never even know. That's how invisible he is. Right. And it just seems so, 
uh, harsh yeah. and mean at the time. But I think it does kind of go along with what you were saying. I mean, these people finally, I mean, you get to the bare truth of them, you know, and it's not always pretty. No. Yeah. It was definitely not pretty. Yeah. I mean, they were like shooing the children out of the room and. <laughs> it was, it was definitely an experience I hope I don't have. So our next question is, throughout the novel, the narrator gives speeches or tries to give them to the audience, both black and white, at venues that range from a whites-only to smoker to the funeral of a black street vendor murdered by the police. What role does oratory and more broadly the spoken word play in Invisible Man? Well, I think it's, it's like the central theme is around his speeches and his speech making and how he's so talented at it. But I feel like these speeches are meant like he's under the impression that he's been using these speeches to spark action and change. But really there was no evidence of that in the book. And that not only do, do you not see any action developed from his speeches, it's almost like, and they never even really tell you what he says in his speeches, only no. a few times. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they're popularly received and that's about it. Right. So you're, so it's all just a bunch of blah, 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 you know? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it really, you really get this feeling of futility, like he's doing all of this work and he's, you know, getting in touch with all of these people and he's... You know, contacting all the community leaders and giving these big speeches, but then, you know, the say for example, they were um, trying to resist these evictions. People were getting evicted, right? And it's a, it's huge, a huge issue. Huge issue. You know, people who have lived in their these houses their entire lives, and they're getting thrown out on the street. But like everybody is behind this, but then there's no resolution to it anywhere in the book. Or no. plans. No. They don't talk about any of, like, what they're actually going to do. That's up to the committee to decide. And the mm-hmm. committee is the one that decides that and not you. And like, even when he does get people to act, um, it's, it's pulled back. It's, it's rolled back. Like, you shouldn't be doing this. This is for the committee to do, not for you. Right. So then he feels like, what am I just a mouthpiece I'm not I don't have a brain I'm not supposed to think yeah I'm like yeah this is not cool no so the next question the battle royal is a sequence portrays oh my gosh I don't know what I'm doing the battle royal sequence portrays black men fighting each other for the entertainment of whites does Ellison ever portray similar combats between blacks and whites to what end Oh, this part it was at the start of the book, and I was like, "Oh, what have we gotten ourselves into?" I, I, I also had misgivings <laughs> that teenage boys being bloodied up at the beginning of the book. I was like, "Oh God!" Yeah, I mean the battle, the battle scene. It was very deeply disturbing, and it was meant to be. Um, it was definitely 
an us against each other as opposed to an us against them, I felt like. Um, and, you know, the us against them, this us, us against other theme comes up later in the book also with, um, what was his name? Ross, the, um, the, the Jamaican guy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he often talks about, you know, we're fighting each other. Basically, we should be fighting uh, against them. Exactly. Yeah. So it was definitely a foreshadowing of themes to come. I also feel it does a very deep sense of justice to the zero-sum game that society feels. I can't have some if you have some, so I have to have what you have. Yeah. I, I did feel that throughout the whole novel. Yeah, there there is this scarcity mentality too throughout the whole novel because um, that really struck a chord. That's and it's not as blatant because our main character um, has nothing. Yeah, well, he doesn't, but he's getting by. He's got a scholarship, and then you know he gets this speaking job. Like he's doing okay for himself, right? But it's so. Um, it's just balanced on the edge of a knife. You right, know what right. I mean? Mm -hmm. It's just, it's that, that economic hardship is just an underlying stress to everything. Yeah. Yeah. And then lying about having a job with a trustee and mm -hmm. can't ask his family for help. So he's feeling isolated. Yeah. Yeah. There was definitely a uh, financial struggle feel. Yeah. Throughout everything. So question eight. Throughout the book, the narrator encounters a number of white benefactors, including a millionaire college trustee, an amicable playboy, and the professional agitator, Brother Jack. What does the outcome of these relationships suggest about the possibility of friendship or cooperation between the races? I don't know. All of that brother, brother, brother that they called each other in their organization reminded me of like a really weird religious like cult or something. <laughs> I don't know why. Nobody had like, nobody used their names. And I don't know. It made me like think that. of the Quakers myself. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I get that. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think that the his white friends, so to speak, were not really friends trying to see, hear, and feel the truth of the narrator. They were ever trying to mold him and use him. Yeah, he wasn't allowed to be himself. They all wanted him to be something. He even had to change his name. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Which was hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We never knew what that was either. We didn't know what your his name was, but he changed it. <laughs> to another name that, that we, we didn't know what it was. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that was that was like that was quite cute. I, I giggled a little bit about that. <laughs> Pardon me. What black men does the protagonist choose as mentors or role models? Do they prove to be any more trustworthy than his white benefactors? What about those figures whose authority and advice the narrator rejects? For example, the vet in the Golden Day in the Separatist Ross, the Explorer. What characters in Invisible Man, if any, present sources of moral authority and stability? Oh, well, Bledsoe, I felt like, was a mentor. And, and he was a horrible man. He was 
He was. He was a horrible man. He was. Um, he just basically, he was so sneaky and underhanded, and he sends him to New York with supposed letters of reference so that he can work for a year and get back into college and pay his tuition. And all of his letters that he wasn't allowed to open said that he was never going to be allowed back into the school and just totally tore him down. Right. And, like, but don't let him know Yeah, that he can't work anywhere. Just let him basically starve to death on the streets of New York. Yeah. And so one, one person who wasn't even the recipient of the letter, it was the son of the man who was supposed to get it. Right. Is the only one of, like, what, six letters that... I thought it was 11 letters. It might have been it was, 11. It was, it was the last letter that he had. Yeah. yeah. And it was the only person that said, look, here, you need to read this. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like the top man of the university who he wanted to become. Yeah. Who did this to him. Yeah. And I thought for a short period in time, maybe the engineer, um, at the factory that he worked at could have also been like a friend. Until he tried killing him. I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. He tries to kill him. And what they did in the hospital to him after he was recovering, I am not entirely sure like, that was like a fever dream. I mean, I'm pretty sure it was like electroshock therapy. I think it was. Yeah, it was ECT. It so, was. yeah. I don't even know, like, why they would do that. I'm guessing maybe it was a treatment they did to people to mentally stabilize them. Yeah, I don't know. Because I think it used to be fairly common to do that to... Or people they thought were crazy. I see. Yeah. Well, and I think what's interesting is the vet, right? And Ross, they both seemed to get him to see through. They tried to get through to him to see what's really going on. Right. They were trying to get through to the narrator. They were trying to save him from himself. They were seeing him as he was. Mm-hmm. And he was like, no, you don't see me. And right. then they were like, no, no, we re- we see the real you. And he was like, nope. Yeah. I wonder if, um, you know, I guess that's one of those hindsight things maybe that we all kind of go through. If you... You know, it's that advice you don't want right. from people, you know? Uh-huh. But then in hindsight, you can be like, man. <laughs> you knew what you were talking about. Yeah. What the hell? <laughs> okay. What cultural tendencies or phenomenon does Allison hold up for satire in this novel? For example, what were the real-life models for the founder, the brotherhood, and Rast the extorter? How does the authority, oh, sorry, how does the author convey the failures and shortcomings of these people and movements? So I'm not very historically educated. <laughs> I had to Google it. I didn't realize that they were real life models until I read the discussion questions. I suspected because, I, especially with the Brotherhood, because it was just way too, um, like, or it was a, a real it organization, was, and I didn't know a lot about the time, and so I suspected it was. But the founder was based on, was it Booker T. Washington? Well, he talks a lot about mm-hmm. him at the beginning. 
and um, the Brotherhood were, were communist groups of the time. Okay. And Ross was based on Marcus. Oh my gosh, my handwriting is terrible. I really was tired when I was writing this. Uh -oh. um, but he was a black nationalist. I can't read what I wrote for his last name. And please don't hate me because I don't know my history. I tried to look it up. I just failed in writing it. <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> but one of the shortcomings that I did notice of the Brotherhood is that it was only out to continue its own existence. It wasn't really about making changes. It was just out to, you know, just to keep existing. And um, from what I read online, that was kind of like what, what it was like at the time. Right. It it didn't solve day to day problems that people had. Right. It just sort of continued. It was like you know, these the same struggles every yeah. day again and again. Yeah, they just would get together and talk about it and they it was like a hobby for a lot of the people whose lives weren't being, you know, direly affected by these changes that need to be made, you know? Uh Marcus Garvey. Okay. Thank you, Google. <laughs> um, I, it looks like I wrote Garvieja. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know how to say it. Like, let, me, let me look it up. Oh, yeah. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Another reason why these serious books I can't intelligently speak about because I have no memory for history. Oh, eh, that's fine. Yeah. You're doing fantastic. <laughs> So we just got a few questions left. All right. Oh, let's see what. Where was I at? Number 11, I okay. believe. Yeah. That's right. Why might Todd Clifton have left the Brotherhood to peddle demeaning dancers, Sambo dolls? What does the narrator mean when he says, It was though he, Clifton, had chosen to fall outside of history. How would you describe Ellison's vision of history and the role that African Americans play with it? So, Todd Clifton was a senior advisor, I'm going to say, yeah. for the organization of the Brotherhood. And he gave away all of his power, all of his um, prestige in the organization to peddle these disgusting dolls. Right. That were very demeaning. Demeaning for black people. Yes. And, and he was doing it illegally. Right. And I don't, I don't know, I can't fathom why he would do it other than just he was a little bit farther along than our main character. And maybe he sort of saw the futility of what they were doing or weren't doing in the Brotherhood. I figured he must have had some sort of reckoning with the Brotherhood of um, either corruption or... Um, just how it, it didn't matter what he did. He wasn't going to make a difference. Right. And I think that that his choice of what he was peddling on the street, um, you know, cause I think our main character was like, he could be shining shoes or, you know, whatever else. But I think it was almost really makes it seem that much more of a giving up, you know, yeah. like a losing faith kind of thing. Right. So it's like, 
my whole existence is meaningless, so I might as well be meaningless. Yeah. It was very sad. Yeah, it was very sad. I didn't really like Todd Clifton all that no. much as a character. No, I didn't. Oh, I was sad when he was murdered. I know, my gosh. And he had a very nice funeral. Yeah, but again, it was used as a means to an end, you know? Like, everything is is being used in this story. All the black bodies are used. Yeah. Invisible Man may be said to exemplify the paranoid style of American literature. How does Ellison establish an atmosphere of paranoia in his novel? As though the reader, along with the narrator had waded out into a shallow pool only to have the bottom drop out and the water close over my head. Why is this style particularly appropriate to Allison's subject matter? It feels very real. And, like, when you're reading when you're reading it, you don't think, eh. Yeah, I think you're being a little exaggerating here. Yeah, I it, wasn't familiar with the paranoid style of literature, but this book had me feeling edgy from the get-go. <laughs> I would say, yeah, uh, I've I've read more worse ones, like Hunger Games. They made me chew all my fingernails off. But, yes, it it is. He, yeah, he's paranoid. He's, he's edgy. It is... It's not like a, oh, it's a, like, crazy read. No, it's, like, not everything is what it seems. And it, like, every time he's excited about doing something, you're just like, oh, great. Smack, smack, smack. But you know it's going to be a big smack, smack, and you're like, criminy. (laughs) No. No, just go home. (laughs) And, you know... We've, we've discussed this, right? He's in New York. I, I'm sorry, people from New York. I'm sure it's a perfectly lovely place to live and you are great people. I must have had like a terrible past life in New York because I would never want to go there. I hate reading books about it. I hate it when people talk about living there. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, and we're in New York. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that when we moved, when we got to New York. I was like, oh, no. It gets worse. <laughs> well, she's already about the book. She's just going to have to deal with it. Yeah. Oh, I finished it. And I, I almost counted that for two towards my Goodread books. This was like, man. I'm, extra homework. Extra yeah. homework. <laughs> Where an invisible man does Ellison, who trained as a musician, use language to musical effect? For example, compare the description of the college campus to True Blood's confession to the chapel scene in Todd Clifton's funeral. What different sorts of language does Ellison employ in these and other passages? How does the music of these sections, their rhythms, uh, in alliteration heightened the meaning or play against it? I didn't really notice it. Yeah, I didn't either. I don't. I didn't really have much to say about this part. Um, and that was a lot to go back through and try and dig out of the text. It might have been easier if I had a um, like a digital version or something. Oh, maybe. Maybe. But yeah, I didn't really have a whole lot to say about that. I I think uh, 
if you were more musically inclined, you would probably picked it up. Maybe. Like, are the cadence of some of the statements. It, there is definitely, like, you could see rhythms in some bits of it mm. at times. I remember that, but... Yeah. I, I just tend to pay more attention to that than some people do, only because I'm in a writer's group and we ask silly questions like that to each other. Huh. <laughs> like, oh, that was a really nice cadence to that. <laughs> more than 40 years... After it was first published, Invisible Man is still one of the most widely read and widely taught books in the African-American literary canon. Why do you think this is so? How true is this novel to the lives of black Americans in the 1990s? It's not the 1990s anymore. No. This book is pretty old. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I'm just... I don't feel qualified to even begin to answer that question. Yes. I don't know. Yeah. I would hope it's not similar at all. I would I would really, really hope so. And I would be really appalled um, to believe that it's, it is. And, you know, it is important. I feel that it is being read to bring some of this stuff to the surface so that it can be watched for, you know, so that, so that it doesn't continue some of these terrible behaviors and just, yeah, the whole book, <laughs> the whole book is just a, this is not how a person on this earth should ever be treated. There's so much suffering on this planet and it seems like people are feel very alone in their suffering. So, yeah, I can see why it would be important. It needs to be brought to everybody's attention. So the last discussion question is, in spite of its vast success, or perhaps because of it, Ellison's novel and the author himself were fiercely criticized in some circles for being insufficiently Afrocentric. Do you think this is true? Do you think Ellison made artistic compromises in order to make Invisible Man accessible to white readers? I mean, like, personally, I didn't think it was inaccessible. No, I didn't either. And I think no matter what, when you're a writer and you're in the public opinion, you're just criticized. Like, there are just people who are always going to criticize. Especially something that you're throwing out there that shows flaws in people yeah so this is the end of our discussion questions but we have you know just some general thoughts about how did you feel our identity theme went for the year i i really we we just went the gamut on identity we had a lot of different takes on it 12 different books and I thought it was super interesting journey and it was really great to think about, you know, who am I who am throughout I? this year? Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you have a different feeling of yourself that you did at the beginning of the year? I think I have um better ways to articulate my identity. I feel like at the beginning of the year identity was just more vague to me than it is now that we've gone through all of these books. 
Oh, goodness. Yeah. How about you? I feel like I thought I had a pretty solid sense of who I was at the beginning of the year and that this would be, like, super easy assignment I gave myself. And I'm like, ah, wrong. (laughs) So wrong. (laughs) And and I've learned to look at myself in new and different ways. And I feel like even though it's literature, some of it was nonfiction, some of it was fiction, and, um... I feel like I definitely grew as a person. And, like, these aren't all, like, easy-peasy fun reads, but, like, they were definitely worth the investment of reading them. And they served their purpose. Yeah. And I think the last book especially, I mean, this book was hard for me to get through. But I do feel like it was worth it. I mean, I came out of the end of it hopefully at least a more aware person, if not a better person. Yeah, I really struggled reading through the book, too. And then uh, once it was over, once I had finished it, <laughs> I was like, wow, I'm, I'm really glad I read that. Yeah. Uh, I was not expecting this to be how I finished feeling at the end of this book, but I did. I was really happy to... I was happy to have finished it because it was a horrible story, but I was also happy to have read it. Yes, me too. I felt similarly um, after reading The Grapes of Wrath. Okay. It's that, um, you know, yeah, I don't know. There's something about getting through the end of it, and it's like you witnessed something important, you know? Right. Mm. So, do you have any parting thoughts? Just that I'm very excited to come up with our new list of books for the new year yes we're working on a list of books for 2024 Mm -hmm. we have to have a schedule otherwise monica and i just go "Hmm, what do you want to do i don't know what are you feeling doing oh darn let's just read harry potter again (laughs) (laughs) well i'm reading this well that sounds great okay wait but what should we do for the podcast Hmm, i don't know Oh, yeah. This is why we have to make schedule. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for a wonderful year, and we yeah. will see you at the new year. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Goodbye. Bye.